as the crow flies on the Vance Crow Podcast. Okay. Temple Grandin, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So it is coronavirus 2020. I think it's, what is it, May 8th? Yep. Where are you at right now, Dr. Temple Grandin? I'm at home, and on March 12th, um, I did my last flight. On March 13th, they closed my university, just like all the other universities got closed, and I haven't traveled since. So for people that are not familiar with you, you do animal science and specifically you work a lot with the meat packing world, but why don't you give a little rundown about your background, who you are and why you travel all over the world to, to talk to people about animals. A little rundown. Well, when I was a little kid, I um, had no speech, severely autistic little kid. And I was always good at building things. So when I was in high school, my world revolved around horses. And then I went out to Arizona state university and I got my master's in animal science and I started working with the cattle feed yards. And I can tell you in the 1970s, being a woman in a man's industry, that was not easy. And I had to make myself really good at what I did. And I started designing uh, cattle handling facilities. In fact, there was an HBO movie made about me and I loved the fact that they showed all my jobs. So designing facilities, and then I gradually, you know, build up that business. I've designed a piece of equipment called the center track restrainer system that is in um, all of the um, large beef plants have got it. Um, so equipment, working in behavior. And then I started being asked to do more and more talks about autism. You know, there's a, autism goes from Einstein and half of Silicon Valley programmers, like the fancy mic you've got. Uh, the autistic brain probably invented that. Uh, at, to somebody who can't dress themselves. So I've been doing a lot of talks on what I call my different kinds of minds talk, where I talk about visual thinking, um, math thinking, and verbal thinking. And so I've now in my early 70s. So what I've been doing lately is speaking engagements. But back in the 80s and the early 90s, I was living out in the plants, uh, supervising construction projects, supervising the construction of things I had designed. I also worked with McDonald's Corporation on animal welfare auditing and developed a really simple scoring system for evaluating meat plants. I did that in 1999 and the world um, in the year 2000, around in there. So I've been doing a lot of different things. And um, I was traveling all around, uh, working on animal behavior and building things. Now, recently I was traveling around the universities doing talks to motivate the kids that think differently to get out and be successful. And then all of a sudden, all of this was canceled on March the 13th. You and I have had a chance to meet a couple of different times. And the last time was at NAMI, the North American Meat Institute Conference. That's right. And we had a fantastic lunch because we had a conversation about what it is to think visually. And I think that I think in pictures in many ways and, and my ability to speak about what I see in those pictures has given me a great advantage. But I think you have done a a great job of explaining how different people see the world differently and why they can see things and shape things differently in their mind. How do you describe this to people that don't necessarily have this ability? Well, one of the things the HBO movie Temple Grandin did really well is it showed exactly how I think. And there was one scene in there where they said shoes and all these old 1950s and 60s shoes started popping up. It's... um, or I can be thinking about horses, and now I'm seeing different horses. Some I saw yesterday, a horse I rode in high school. Um, It's specific. Specific examples make concepts. Like when I design equipment, I can can see it. When I I was doing the drawings, I can see the steel work, see the concrete work. Um, Nothing's abstract. Verbal thinkers, things tend to be much, much more abstract. They'll say to me, oh, teachers say all the time, what do I do with autistic kids in the classroom? I go, I don't know. How old are they? Am I dealing with a three-year-old? I get a very different picture. I'm now seeing a little nursery school that's next door to where I live. And, or I'm a, a, an elementary school kid, a high school kid. I need to know a few things before I can answer that. And then a, a child that's gotten older that's autistic, is it that they have more concrete pictures through which they can grab ideas and be able to place them into their imagination? Like, what? why is there such a large difference between the autistic child that's in nursery school up to high school? 
Well, these abilities, some abilities and things like visual thinking and math usually don't show up in nursery school, but uh, a person with autism is into details, specific things. I'm a picture thinker. That's actually called an object visualizer scientifically. Another kind of thinker you can have in autism is the mathematical visual spatial thinker. That's half a Silicon Valley. Half a Silicon Valley is probably on the autism spectrum. And then you've got people that are in the words, love history. They often absolutely love history, love facts. They love sports statistics and things like this. So there's like three kind of specific kinds of thinking. In fact, I talk about those thinking in my book, The Autistic Brain, because you might just say, well, that's just a bunch of, you know, that's not even true. Well, yes, it is uh, true. There's science to show you can have an object visualizer. They tend to go into arts. Another thing they go into is the skilled trades fixing cars, designing things, building things. Then the more mathematical thinkers, they're the uh, computer scientists, they bring you know, the electronics that we're talking on. And then you've got word thinkers. But what happens is if you add circuits to do some of this other kind of thinking, you take out some social circuits. Socialization eats up a pile of processor space, just a big pile. And, and uh, a brain can either be more thinking or a brain can be more social-emotional. Now, a certain amount of this is just normal variation. When do you slap a label on it? Because one of the questions I ask educators, and I put up a picture of Michelangelo, and I'll say, he was a sixth-grade dropout. His dad hated art, wanted him to do business documents. Well, where would he end up today when they've taken art class out of the schools? I think one of the worst things the schools have done is taking all the hands-on classes out. Okay, what about stuff online? Lectures work fine. Computer science statistics class works fine online. But I just talked to our veterinary students yesterday and calving class online. You're not going to learn to calve cows online. So that we have just entered a very interesting period in our world's history, which is because of coronavirus, people have to be distant. And now you're going to take what was the learning environment where you were in person with people? You were actually, in your case, teaching them about how to stand next to animals or how to calf, right, how to move them, yeah, how to physically be there. And now that's not happening. So, how do you think coronavirus is impacting people's ability to learn right now, both autistic and just just uh, normies like me? I think it affects different majors differently. Okay, the computer people invented the stuff we're talking on right now. The computers, uh, programming, math, that stuff works fine online. But the computer people need to be careful. These are what works well for them, it's not going to work well for, for a theater class, let's say. Well, you know, you're putting on a play. We have a fashion design department. It's, unless you've got a fancy sewing machine, you're not going to do that at home. Or, vet, or surgery for veterinarians. How are you going to do car mechanics uh, online? Yes, there's things you can learn, but there's a point where you've got to actually take the car apart and actually do it. And I'm very concerned. We have a gigantic shortage right now of high-end skilled trades, and we're losing skills because we took it out of the schools 25 years ago. Okay, let's look at these big food factories. I've worked with every major meat company, and it's very interesting how the engineering is done in these plants, and they're all the same. The visual thinkers like me lay out the whole entire plant. You know, we get given the title of draft, draft person, but we do a lot more than that. Lay out the whole entire plant. Also, the visual thinkers make the very clever equipment, like a super clever packaging machine. That's made by the visual thinkers. So what do the mathematicians do? Boilers, refrigeration, roof trusses, water, power. What's happened now when new processing plants have been put in, all of the clever engineering stuff is coming from Europe because they've kept skilled traits like a new poultry processing plant just was built last year. A hundred shipping containers of stuff from Europe, beautiful equipment. Each shipping container is equal to one semi-truck load because they still kept their skilled trades. And these kind of skills aren't, you're not gonna do this stuff online. You see that this, and this, it strikes yeah. me as once the skill is not here, it's very difficult to uh, reshore it into the United States. So people that are learning how to do it have to learn from people that know how to do it and, uh, and to be able to propagate it out and teach more people. I didn't realize how bad this was until about three years ago. We were teaching a class at one of the great big pork plants. And I was looking at all the equipment in there and I got a tour of the whole of two of these gigantic plants and the stuff was all imported. 
But then I go, okay, the building, the refrigeration, that stuff we made. The thing's more mathematical stuff, but all is super clever conveyors. Then I went to a big tech company. I can't tell you where I went. Super fancy tech factory. I went there last year, signed a non-disclosure. I can't tell you what it, where it is or what it does, but it had a lot of conveyors in there to move stuff around the fact, in the factory. Those came from Germany. And I'm going, we've got some serious problems here. And uh, this is the stuff online learning. Yeah, you can learn certain things online, but there's a point where you're going to have to work on the car. There's a point where you got to get out and work on conveyors. Boy, and I've worked on them. I've seen every way conveyors can mess up. You don't learn that until you've actually done it. So let's talk about a real-world example about uh, that has lots of conveyor belts. Right now, in the United States, we have meatpacking plants that, because of coronavirus, have not been able to operate at either any capacity, they've been completely shut down, or they're operating at a much reduced capacity, which is starting to create fears about food shortages. How real do you think the food shortages or the meat shortages are going to be? And what do you think about the capacity that the, the factories have right now? Well, first of all, why are they getting infected? All right, what I've looked at, and I've read a lot of stuff, there seem to be certain places getting infected. And they're places where you've got lots of people stuffed in close to each other. Cruise ships, really bad. Shared ventilation. Aircraft carrier, really bad. Prisons. I just read about a prison where almost everybody was infected. And meatpacking plants, especially out in the, in the meat cut-up, where they're just standing there shoulder to shoulder. we got lots of people there together. Now, the thing we don't know now, I just read that one of the meat plants is 50% infected now. Will we go to herd immunity? That's, uh, and that will solve a lot of problems relatively quickly if once you get coronavirus, you stay immune to it for a while. We don't know how long that's going to last, but it's caused some real problems and it's people talk about this term herd immunity but if you're not actually dealing with animals or herds it's not really an intuitive idea it's just kind of like immunity what is the difference between just immunity and herd immunity all right well let's say in the prison for example and if i was an epidemiologist i'd be going to this prison and begging to test everybody for the uh, antibodies okay if everybody in this prison is now infected guards and inmates if um maybe a new person coming in there would get infected. But the rest of it, if there's herd immunity, it would stop. Uh, but you see, we don't know now if that, if that um, uh, immunity lasts for just a couple of weeks. No, it's not going to work. Um, when I was a child in the 50s, they deliberately exposed kids to measles, mumps, and chickenpox. It was done on purpose because those were diseases where immunity would last for pretty much a lifetime. And they, they were much more deadly and bad in adults. And so they, well, you know, you other kid had chickenpox, they'd take you over to their house so you'd get you'd chickenpox. You had to get all these diseases done while you were still in elementary school. Now it's before there were vaccines. I actually experienced that. Well, that's herd immunity. For, but that's a disease where the immunity lasts a long time. We don't know how long the immunity to COVID's gonna last. Don't, we have no idea. And, and then what was found in the prison and what's been found in the plants too and other places, there's a whole pile of people who didn't even know they had it until they test them. So you go all the way from real, real uh, serious disease to terrible disease. And this is just, I read a lot. Yeah, I had interviewed a man named Brad Frecking, who is running a pork plant um, in a couple of different places, South Dakota and Missouri. And what he discovered, because they were doing testing on their employees, was a thousand people out of a 2,000 person had, um, had, had the disease. But it turns out 90% of them were completely asymptomatic. And so while they were testing positive, they were looking around at other people saying, I feel perfectly healthy. I feel fine to work. Well, and so we've got we these challenges. Be, what we need to be doing now, because I've read some stuff on how much virus you, you get exposed to initially affect severity, is, is yeah, I, if I, epidemiology, what I would do is go into that plant and I want to interview all those employees. I want to do a, a, a antibody test. Now, there's been some problems with the accuracy, but then I'd also want to do, were you no symptoms? We really, you know, medium sick, you know, I'd put them like in four rankings. And then I'd look that back against the immunity readings and then see how long it lasts. Because now I have a population where I know who they are. 
the, you know, the same thing with the prison or cruise ship, uh, because maybe they just end up with herd immunity. And we need to know how many had no symptoms. See, this is where uh, a scientist that's in this field needs to get all over that. We need to solve these problems. Another thing we need to do for severe COVID, I'm in the at-risk group. I'm, most young people just to get over it. But, and it, but, there's a, but especially in older people and a few young people, your immune system goes to fight it off, fight the virus off. But then in some people, and I just read a really good paper on this yesterday with graphs that showed a whole bunch of stuff. Um, you're, imagine your body's a military base. I like uh, visual analogies. And so the virus comes in and my immune system goes out and fights it. My soldiers fight it. But then the virus overruns the base. My soldiers are fighting, but then my soldiers just go berserk. And instead of protecting me, they burn, start burning down the barracks. That's an auto, <laughs> like an autoimmune reaction. That's what's called the cytokine storm. That's what kills, is the cytokine storm. Most people don't get it. So you just tough it out. But the people that get the cytokine storm, the other ones end up on respirators and everything else. Now what's needed is an anti-inflammatory medication to treat the cytokine storm, to make your troops stand down. Now there's been all, I'm not naming any drugs because then people go out and hoard the stuff. But basically your principle is an antiviral drug is used early to stop the invasion. And the graph was very, very clear on this. And then, then most people, you know, tough it out. But let's say the soldiers start to burn the barracks. An anti-inflammatory drug has to be given when the first barracks is burnt, not when the whole base is in flames. Because then you're, you're too far gone. So timing is very important. Timing. You would have to... Timing. I've got four peer-reviewed articles now, not on preprint servers. And I found a super good one yesterday. And, and uh, it's timing for an anti-inflammatory drug to work. And there's a whole bunch to pick from. Whole bunch to pick from. And a lot of them are old generics. And you go, that stuff? It's used for something totally different. But the secret is timing. And if you don't get the timing right, then it doesn't work. It and strikes me. It strikes me as almost the perfect storm that we created in the sense that we made people so afraid about um, getting close to other people with coronavirus or going to the hospital with coronavirus because it is so infectious that people are likely, if they're getting it and the barracks start burning down, they're still at home saying like, no, I need to tough this out. It isn't, I don't, I don't well, want to go to the hospital. If you start to get, see, the problem I think is, is that by the time you go to the hospital, you may barely can breathe. It may be too late to use the anti-inflammatory drug. And again, I'm going to do no drug names because I can't, because hoarding can get going, things like that. But, but there's a variety of drugs and some of them are cheap generics and they're on the shelf. But the secret is the timing too early, then you might retard your troops from fighting. Too late, the base is ruined, your lungs are wrecked, and then, the, then other organs get wrecked and you're, and you're bad. Timing is the key. And what tends to happen is seven to 10 days, you feel like terrible, and then sometimes these people feel a bit better. And then your soldiers go berserk and they're dead the next day. It's seven to 10 days in and you get the timing right, that's when you throw the drugs at it. So or not after. From your perspective, do you think that a vaccine is more likely or do you think it is that we will figure out how to treat this with drugs that once people get sick, we know how to treat them and so the cytokine storm doesn't well, kill quite as many people? I think it may be a people. combination of both as a vaccine is going to take some time to do. I mean, let's say they have one tested by September. Well, then they'd give it to the health care workers. Um, then a hopeless older seniors will get, get it. But that's going to take time. I'm a little upset that people aren't doing enough work on say, what can I find that's cheap on the pharmacy shelf? I'm looking at it like an engineering problem. I know there's drugs on the pharmacy shelf and I've looked them up. And, and, and you look at it and you go, that stuff, you've got to be kidding. And it's some for common generic for common use. And, but okay, you know, you've got the um, 
you know, I, when you, I approach it like an engineer. Okay, now I know this timing thing. All right, I want to use a cheap drug, easy to manufacture around the world, and then figure out in a simple way how to do the timing. Think so, simple is a tendency to think too complicated, but if they're too far gone, it won't work. And if it's too early, it's, it's not good. So we started talking about conveyor belts and timing. And uh, one of the big challenges with this coronavirus is that the timing of the entire factory system is set up on having workers spaced a certain amount of space apart, well, having yeah. a certain number of workers. And if all of a sudden those things get changed, all of a sudden your labor is not allowed to be as close together as they were, now these factories don't work. How serious well, no, of no, this? They, they'll still work. Okay. It's just reduced capacity. Okay. Okay. Like I was just looking at a picture the other day of, of the, one of the news groups had of inside a big meat fab. And I was thinking about, yeah, I take some people out of it. The plant will still run. It's just going to run slower. It just reduces the capacity. It doesn't turn it off. Let's say half the people in there, I can still run the plant. It's just going to run a whole lot slower. People are sending me photos where in the grocery store, the meat is much lower. Is this a real problem or is this just hype? Is this just people no, saw something? There's some problems. And, and um, uh, one of the problems is, okay, the pigs are growing, pigs are growing, and then when they're ready, they got to go. And there's been some really bad problems. They just had to euthanize some pigs and throw them away because they didn't have enough plant space. This brings up another thing about supply chains. All right, now let's look at it almost like nodes on a network. You can look at like data centers on a network or, so, you know, for electronically. And when I first started in the industry in the 70s, like in my state of Arizona, for example, in the 70s, we had two big plants, we had Swift and Cut A, and then we had four, what we call medium-sized. Now, the Swift plant back in the 70s did 1,200 cattle a day, and this medium-sized plant maybe did 400 a day, 350 a day, but about a third of our capacity was medium-sized plants. So let's say Swift went completely down, I would still have, you know, over half my capacity. Now, if Swift just had slowed down, I'd, you know, maybe I'd only lose 10% 10, uh, 10 of my capacity. See, it's a more distributed supply chain. Now, but let's just say I have three plants in a network. I'll lose an entire plant because they've got to close it to clean it. Then I'd lose a third of my supply. Okay, then I, ran, then I turn the plant back on. It runs slow. Maybe I'm losing, you know, a, a fourth of my supply. You see, when you have a – see, the thing about a concentrated network – it's efficient. It's efficient. Very cost efficient. Now, when it comes to animal welfare, big plants can do a good job on that. I've worked with them. Big is not bad. I want to be very clear. Big is not bad. Big's fragile. There's a big difference. Like just the other day, here in the state of Colorado, the internet went down. The whole internet went down for 10 minutes. I was on a conference call with my student uh, thesis committee. And I'm going, oh, man, what's wrong with my router? And I was you know, pulling out the thing for rebooting the router. And then my student said, well, I'm down too. So then I didn't mess with the router. I don't like to do that. And, and uh, it went back on. And then I was talking to another person I know, and it was off at her house. That was even further away. Then I talked to a lady in Denver, and hers had been down. And that's 50 miles from where I live. So, you know, there's something to be really said for big is for big is because it has allowed Americans to have access to beef on a level that is amazing. That's like we've thing. been able to be at the top of the food chain. This is the thing. Big, big can be very good. You set a big plant up right. They work really well. You can put really clean product out. We can have super good animal welfare in these big gigantic plants. But it's a more, con but the, but it's not a robust supply chain. You break a node on the system. And you see, when the internet first started, it was totally distributed. Well, now I don't think things are as distributed. I mean, we just lost a big pile of internet completely down for 10 minutes. And I was freaking out. That so what do you think is the answer? That day. What do you think is the answer out of this? Um, because right now we do have a system where there's a lot of uh, several big packers and very few medium to small. Do we get through this crisis um, 
just trying to keep them running at their capacity well, or do we need to make bigger changes? They run the plant slowly. The, the thing has been the worst thing is they've had to kill pigs and throw them away. That's the worst thing. Absolutely the worst thing. Now the little, because we only have real big plants and we don't have very many, what we used to call medium sized plants. Then we have little tiny locker plants, like someone who raises a pig in their backyard. Well, there's no way they can take them. Um, but that's uh, cattle is easier to you put them on hay and stuff. But have you ever seen the euthanization of pigs on this scale before? Is this unprecedented? It's never happened before. Never happened before. I've been in the industry for 47 years. This is the first time this has happened. And the other thing you've got to look at when you have a network with uh, large nodes on it, for anything, not just me, power, electric power. In Canada, they had an ice storm that took out hundreds of the big Eiffel Tower electric transmission towers. The other thing about a big node on a network, whether it's a warehouse for dry goods, okay, what's dry goods? Dry goods is an old fashioned term for everything you buy in a store that's not refrigerated basically, or wet. You know, that's gonna be electronics, clothes, everything else, dry goods warehouse. Um, I'd probably have a hard time running out on a generator. Uh, they don't have the people packed in it the same way a packing plant does. The infection rates in the large dry goods warehouses, that's been, that's been way lower. But what's happening now, the thing that may happen now, we got plants, half the people are infected. Are they gonna get herd immunity? That's the $50 million question. And it takes a lot of people to, where you have to have a huge amount of people is, is cutting the meat up. Are you concerned about meat shortages? It's a, it, it's a shortage, it's gonna be a shortage in the, in, the, in the short term. But what it's showing is, I don't care if it's internet or it's meat, when you concentrate a network into a few large nodes, you make that network efficient, real low cost, but fragile. You distribute the network. It's more expensive. But when th something breaks, it's more robust. And it's a trade-off. And, 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 it, and I don't think it's just meat. Now, there's a lot of other stuff. Um, um, let's take chips, for example. I've looked at that. What goes inside your phone? What goes inside this computer? There's only like, there's like one place that makes the best ones. Uh, there's only a few factories that make the heart of everything electronic. It's the same thing. Let's not just go after the meat industry. Big, efficient, can do really good product, whether it's chips or whether it's meat, but it's fragile. Okay, I'm worse. Okay, let's talk about generic drug supply chains. Oh, this gets even worse. Because I've looked into that. Common generic drugs, antibiotics, blood pressure pills, you know, just common stuff. You've got a few plants in China that make the raw materials. Then they ship them to India to actually manufacture the pills. Now they do stockpile a few months of the raw materials. Now you can't stockpile pigs, but you can stockpile the um, raw materials. What happens to the, what do we do about antibiotics if we lose that supply chain? It's very efficient, but fragile. So don't just pick meat out for this. Oh, that's very interesting because meat is the only one that, I, as far as I can tell, that's really being focused on. It's the one that I'm uh, super interested in. But the heart of this computer, the heart of your phone, comes from a very, very narrow supply chain. You get sick, you need some antibiotics. It's coming from a very concentrated supply chain. You haven't seen it because it hasn't busted yet. So I've seen you speak at uh, NAMI, the North American Meat Institute, and there they are trying to come up with what are the ways that we can create rules and guidelines that make it so the animals are safe, that the food line is safe. When you do that, when you add on rules, and I'm just using the meat industry because it's the one that we both share um, an understanding of, uh, you can create rules that make it so things are safer or cleaner, but when you start asking the locker 
which only processes a few pigs a day or the medium-sized meat plant to abide by the the standards that you have in these huge systems, they would make the case that it's onerous, that it's too much for them to be able to do, which is why you have to have economies of scale because of the regulation. Is that a fair? Regulation is not why you have economies of scale. Okay. Let's think electric power, water, labor. It's it's more on that. Okay. Okay. The interesting thing on the regulations thing is we've been able to take the rules that I've made and apply them to locker plants and not make them go broke. Because what I've done is I don't tell them exactly what equipment they have to have. We use five simple outcome measures. Like, okay, we're using captive bolt stunning and it's got to make the cattle unconscious with a single shot. And uh, in, on NAMI right now, if it's below 96%, somebody's going to get kicked off the McDonald's approved supplier list. And the biggest problem we had with that was broken equipment. That's not making them buy stuff. Take care of the stuff you've got. And, and then we do vocalization scoring, a handling scoring. If they're out there slamming doors on cattle and poking them with electric prods, they're going to start mooing. And that needs to be under 5%. Wait, so you can monitor the sound of cows to know how healthy they are? I can, uh, whether they are handled right, not health, handled right. Wow. Okay. Well, because you got, let's say you got a 20 or 30% focalization score. And I go out to the, the cattle handling area and they're out there slamming gates on them. Or they're out there just zapping them all the time with electric prods. Cattle block at the silliest little things. Like if you have a, let's say that a paper towel just moving like this hanging out of a dispenser, you'll about shut the plant down. I've gone <laughs> in and taken a paper towel out, then the prod score went from like 30% down to about 10%. And all I did was get rid of a paper towel. You'll just block at the littlest, stupidest things. So we measured the stunning score. Everything had to be dead when you hang it on the rail. Um, vocalization score, falling down, that's usually due to rough handling or slippery floors and electric prods. Five measures. And, and uh, when we were working on this back in 1999, when I was training the McDonald's and the Wendy's people, one thing I'm very proud of, we went into some older plants that were not very pretty and uh, kind of shabby, and we got good scores. And we've done the same thing with locker plants, doing simple things like non-slip flooring in the stunning area. That's a simple thing. Non-slip flooring in the unloading ramp, changing lighting. Animals don't like to go in the dark, so I duct taped the light on the entrance of the chute, and then they went in. I put a wall up so they don't see people walking by. Simple stuff like this, uh, airflow direction, simple stuff to fix. And we made, I'm very proud that out of the 75 McDonald's suppliers, only three had to build something expensive. You know you have um, an amazing ability. It's what really sets you apart to be able to, as you describe it, see as the animals see it. But you're also a teacher. So have you been able to teach others to see the world through the eyes of an animal the way that you are able to see well, it? Well, when I first started in the 70s, I, didn't, I thought everybody was a visual thinker. I didn't realize I thought differently. And, and I'm I find that some people I can teach, other people I have to just have to give them checklists where they can go in and they just use a checklist to, uh, uh, to look for the different things. But I've went into a plant, here's one that's really cool, it's over in Ireland. And uh, we get off of the Dublin airport, we get out and we get this really super cool executive black helicopter. You want cool. And, we, this, is all, and this is only like three years ago, this is relatively recent. We land on the front lawn of this beef plant, <laughs> and we go in there, and the cattle wouldn't go in the stun box. And I go up there, and there were some holes in the door about this big. The cattle could see some motion through it, and we covered them with duct tape, and it worked. And then we flew away. <laughs> that was three years ago. And people kind of go, oh, why didn't I see that? That's all we did. That was three years ago. I guess and I got so, job security. Are, uh, so I, I've gotten to meet uh, one of your assistants, uh, Lily, I think is yes. her name. Yeah, Lily Calloway Edwards. And so she is uh, very eloquent, speaks, but her social skills are very different than yours. Um, well, she's got good social skills. 
Yeah, and so that's what I'm I'm wondering. So would, was she a visual thinker like you? I don't want to talk about another person, but I, she, I'm very impressed with her. And yet she's very different from you. So how did she get the capacity to work as closely as she is with you? Well, she went, She was hired by a meat company and she went around all the, their plants. And then I visited the plants after she had been there and I saw the things that she did. And they were the same things that I did. And you see, you can teach it. You know, you can teach it. And the thing that's interesting is you can go into a place and you fix a whole lot of little things and it adds up to a big thing. I'll give you an example. I went in an older plant and they did dairy cows there. Well, the first mistake they made is they were bringing too many cattle up at a time. So I stopped that. Okay, I first worked on the handling. I got the electric prods out of their hands. Okay, now they still were blocking. They wouldn't go into the single file chute. And there was a sunbeam coming in and we blocked that with a tarp. Then they could see a person who was checking the cattle IDs. We put a big piece of cardboard up in front of her. Okay, that fixed that part of it. Then coming around up, up, to, the, up to the restrainer area, they wouldn't go in. I taped the light on the restrainer. Anyway, then people were walking by in front of it. We hung a curtain up. And we did all those things. These were simple things. There was a big improvement in the handling. And each time we fixed one of these things, it got better. And these were not expensive things. It was an old shabby facility. And, and uh, a whole lot of little things add up to a big thing. Too often people want to do the big thing. Oh, let's just tear it all out. No, no, wait a minute. And I, I've gone into a place that had brand new equipment. I remember going into one place, they were running their conveyors too fast. They thought it would speed up. Oh, I said, slow it down, slow it down. This is terrible. And then they had a gate that went like that. And I fixed that. And then I put a light on the restrainer entrance and... There's a tendency to want to do the big thing, where sometimes it's a whole lot of little things you need to do. Your way of viewing the world allows you to connect with animals, but I would also think that because you see the world so differently, connecting with just regular people would be a different experience for you. What, it, what has it been like for you to talk with people that view the world so differently than you? The first step is realizing that people think differently. That's the first step. And then you can learn how to work with them. Like all the stuff now with coronavirus, I'm disgusted that they haven't done a better job on repurposing old drugs for the anti-inflammatory. Um, people are too busy fighting, I call it a psychodrama, than they are in solving problems. I used Years ago, I used to say, engineering's easy. It's the people problems that are hard. <laughs> So you uh, have written several books, one of which was um, uh, Animals Make Us Human. Yes. And it talks about people having pets. What is something about pet ownership that most people have not observed, even though they've maybe owned a dog for, for many years? Well, a lot of people get companionship from pets. I don't really understand what you're asking. Well, I'm saying like uh, one of the things, if you have observed all of these things about cows and the way they walk through shoots, but yeah. you also can see dogs and the way that they interact with their humans. I think people, I, I know myself included, probably misinterpret what my dog is trying to tell me quite a bit of the time. Well, first and of just, all, dogs and other animals have certain instinctual behaviors. Like the dog will do the play bow where it puts its butt up in the air. That's a play bow. Okay, it lifts up the, the lip and hackles. Yeah, I definitely not want, wanting to play. Those are what I call species. Um, that's the species typical for the dog. That's like hardwired in. Now, one thing where people and dogs get confused, seeing people hugging around here is all lovey-dovey. In dogs, it's dominance. And if you go online and you type in the, into Google Images, uh, children hugging dogs, you'll see the dog with the mouth kind of just clamped shut. And the kid's hugging it around the shoulders. It's tolerating it, but it doesn't really like it. <laughs> our species for lovey-dovey is different than theirs. You know, just stroke your dog. He's going to really like that. And also, don't pat your dog like that. Stroke him. Stroke him. Another thing is just to get people to look at what's their dog interested in. And I see dogs out for walks on the big tape measure leashes. And they've never had it so good now during COVID. And the dog wants to go sniff the tree, and he just, he's ganked away. And I said, well, he's checking out his P-mail, you know, let him, uh, you know, let him do that. And, and I've had people write to me and say, well, after reading, my, after reading one of my books, either Animals in Translation, Animals Make Us Human, that now they started looking at what their, their pet was interested in. And 
I'm worried a lot of dogs don't have a good social life. You rear any animal alone where it doesn't learn when it's young how to interact with other animals, they'll be nasty fighters. They'll fight other animals. I've seen dogs do it, horses do it, cattle even do it really bad. Yeah, we were very fortunate when we uh, when we got our new dog, we had a greyhound and she was getting older, but it was good to have the two dogs around each other because the older dog taught the newer dog exactly how we behave and what's going right. on and how things work. But if an animal, but if an animal doesn't get that social training when it's young, where it doesn't learn the give and take of social relations, okay, well one will be dominant. Um, I'll never forget when I when I bought some property, it came with a big black horse on it very friendly to people. Any other horse you put on a 20 acre pasture, Blackie try to co totally go after him, like back him into the corner and just kick him to death. And he'd been reared alone. I, we ha I had to tell him, you know, you can't board him here. He's, he's too nasty towards other horses. And, and uh, young animals need to learn social skills from older experienced animals. Did you see how uh, during coronavirus, all of the pet shelters have been emptied out? Like there, there yes. a huge amount of adoption that's gone on. Well, it's um, well being home. Another thing I get asked all the time in the autism community: you've got family with an autistic kid that's not at school. What are we going to do? And I suggest establish a new schedule. I make myself get up in the morning, take a shower, be dressed for work by eight, make a new routine. And then I suggest that they look up life on the International Space Station. Not all the spacewalk stuff, but, you know, tight uh, sleeping quarters. Uh, they can get a tour of the toilet. That doesn't look too much like very much fun. But you're talking about people living in tight quarters. And one thing NASA's learned is they have a schedule. They make them get up in the morning, get dressed. They have to do their station maintenance. They've got to do their experiments. Uh, then they have midday meal. Everybody eats together, important part of the schedule. Then they have alone time. Then they have their exercise time because they've got to exercise two hours a day. But making a, a, a schedule. Another thing that some parents are doing during this time is a good time to teach a kid life skills, cooking, sewing, uh, uh, building things. It'd be a good time to teach those skills because lots of times I'm seeing smart, fully verbal autistic kids that ought to be doing a skilled trade uh, that aren't learning things like shopping. And when I was out in construction all the time, like in the 80s and the 90s, I was living on the road, staying in little strip motels. That's before you had Holiday Inn Expresses, living in little hotels with the construction workers. I'm going to estimate that 20% of the skilled drafting designers I worked with, engineers and skilled trades welders I worked with building my projects, were either autistic, dyslexic, or ADHD. I went, I went through my projects and I listed about five people I know undiagnosed autistic. One guy has 20 patents. Now the thing that concerns me is what's happening to the junior edition of those kids today. They don't get a chance to do skilled trades. Uh, people don't think to take the little math geniuses and expose them to programming. Expose them to, if the kid's bored with baby third grade math, let them do high school math. And you can just do it online. People don't think to do this. Moving my head. Um, but we're losing skills. And I didn't realize how serious it was until I went to the poultry plant that was all the specialized equipment came over in 100 shipping containers. One shipping container per semi. That's 100 semi loads of really beautiful equipment from Europe. Yeah, I'm struck that uh, our culture, probably the same thing that you were describing about that the big, when you make these things big, they're efficient, is probably true also with uh, students. You know, if you need something that's specialized for kids that are thinking about the world differently, yes, you can get a lot of kids through a standardized system, but if you don't pick out those kids that think differently and uh, give them a different way of learning or a different way to absorb the material, you're, you're missing out on that opportunity to leverage the different mind. Well, the problem is we have a real shortage of skilled trades. And 25 years ago, they took, you know, welding shop and auto shop and stuff like that out of the schools, home ec, sewing, cooking, all that stuff out of the schools. And, and kids aren't even getting exposed to that to see that that's a career. But I'm very concerned about, about skill shortages. And, 
and kids get interested in things to get exposed to. I get asked, how did I how, how could I be a person from outside of Boston and get interested in the cattle industry? I had no background in it. I was exposed to it when I was a teenager. This brings up a really important thing. Students get interested in things they get exposed to. Well, I'm very concerned about the losing skills. And again, on the narrow supply chains, what's inside your phone and makes it work is on a very tight supply chain that's tighter than meat is. And generic drugs. That supply chain is even more concentrated than meat plants are. Yeah, and it seems to me that the kids that are um, right now in Silicon Valley, if you're an autistic person, the chances are if you're being asked to interact with the social norms of just regular people, you're going to have crossways, right? So you had the issues of like that kid, James Damore. Are you familiar with him? No, what did he do? So there was a, an engineer at Google, and um, he made some observations about the way that they were working together in teams that he was making just the observations based on data, but apparently this offended a lot of people that he was making observations that people behave differently. Men behave differently than women. Some women I behave think one I way. Think and I know what you're talking about. And I've read that book on, on the coders. I've been to Silicon Valley. I've been to most of the big tech companies. I've been, half those programmers are on the spectrum and they actually avoid the labels. Those kids go to Montessori schools. They get introduced to programming early. And one thing I'm concerned about right now, because we do have a shortage of coders, let's say I have a little math genius in third grade, uh, they're so hung up on the autism, they don't think to teach the kids some JavaScript, that's what makes Minecraft work. They don't think to, and, and you can find that stuff online for free, code.org, Khan Academy. I tell parents about this kind of stuff all the time. Oh, and if you want to really turn on the math kids, look up protein symmetry on Google Images. Protein symmetry, what will we find? You will find beautiful geometric patterns and they're inside your body. And that, and you start looking up a lot of things. Okay, viruses, they have beautiful geometric patterns too. They look like art. Well, take a, I can take a third grade math kid, start showing him that stuff. He's going to find out how those patterns work. I. But people don't think to show the kid this stuff. They get so much in the autism box, they don't think about developing a math skill. But the other thing you got to do is you got to take that thing they're fixated on. When I was a little kid, mother took my drawing skill and really worked on broadening it. And instead of just drawing the same horse head over and over again, she got me drawing the whole horse, draw a saddle, draw, um, you know, you broaden that skill and develop it. And... You know, there's a lot of uh, famous people that were probably autistic. Einstein didn't talk until age three. Oh, really? No, didn't talk until age three. Where would he be today? This is the problem. There's famous mathematicians that probably were, you know, on the autism spectrum. So you've been to, to uh, you know, small schools in rural America. If you were a parent of an autistic child in a place without very many resources, how would you be recommending those people prepare their kids? I mean, you mentioned Khan Academy and some of these things online. Well, one of the problems you got, let's say you got a single mom who's working. Well, now you've got a single mom that's home and she doesn't have a paycheck. Uh, you know, we've got some really serious problems here. Um, but one of the big mistakes they made in the schools is taking out, okay, theater, art, sewing, woodworking, uh, auto shop, welding. Because I know a person and he owns a metal fabrication company and a big metal fabrication company and he sells stuff all around the world and he was dyslexic adhd he's real autistic acting horrible student took welding in high school started making stuff and selling it owns a big metal fabrication company you see this is the sort of stuff as i go back and forth between the autism world and the uh, and the uh, you know just well, we've got to work on building some stuff now. I'm probably going to be going out to shopping outside of Greeley real soon. We've got to work on building some stuff. Uh, they, the autistic brain gives us a tech that we are talking on right now. It's made by the autistic brain. You see a little bit of autism. You take out some social, then you get more thinking. Then you get all the way on the other end of the spectrum. You've got somebody who can't talk and they can't dress themselves. See, the big problem is he's got the same name. Now, here's a mind blower of a paper. It's called Genomic Trade-Offs. 
are autism and schizophrenia, the steep price for a human brain. The same genes that make the brain big cause autism and schizophrenia. It's embedded. It's tons of little code changes. Part of it's just normal variation. We get rid of all the autism genes. You better like the electronics you have because you won't be getting any more. <laughs> Do you think autism is increasing in prevalence or is it just being better understood? What do you think is going on there? I think some of it is increased detection. I go, haven't been going to many autism meetings now because every, all of, nobody's traveling. All the corporations have travel bans. Everything's grounded. But when I was going to autism meetings, like before March 12th, uh, I'd have a lot of grandparents come up to me. And when the kids got diagnosed, they would discover that they were autistic and they had decent jobs. And that's because in our generation, kids were taught working skills. They had paper routes. Also, social skills were taught in a much more concrete way. You were taught to shake hands, taught to say please and thank you. If I stirred my drink with my finger, mother would say use the spoon. There was much more so, uh, things being taught. Now, where one of these older grandparents could benefit from a diagnosis is on their relationships. Their marriage is a mess. That's where the diagnosis can be helpful. But on the work front, there's a lot of kids. I, I look at this kid and I go, you're just normal, you know, computer geek kind of kid that ought to work in Silicon Valley. And the other thing, then when we, when, you know, they try to go to Volk Rehab, they don't differentiate between where bagging groceries is a suitable career and where maybe it's training job. They're not making that differentiation. Also, there's too much emphasis on doing an interview. And I tell people, half of all good jobs, people go in the back door. I was out at a major tech company and I talked to a kid that had a really cool job. I said, and you're from Wisconsin? How'd you get this job? His professor knew somebody. That's the back door. And parents don't think they're like, oh, there's a little florist shop over there or some other kind of little shop. Maybe their kid could work there in the summer. You know the people that run the shop, just using resources that are in the neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, work is one of those things that if you don't do it as a kid, you don't realize how many skills you're picking up, even if it's not like I had a construction job. Okay. The value of that was not me learning how to swing a hammer, although that was valuable. It was learning how to ask for more work. It was learning how to take on responsibilities, how to be a good member of that team. It was figuring out what could I build my skills in. And what but it, it seems to me there are not a lot of kids working these days. And I don't know that that's their choice. Well, you see, but this is the problem. You know, I tell parents, chores for little kids. Now, we don't have paper routes anymore, but we need to find something to substitute for that. Now, unfortunately, all the churches and community centers now are closed because those were perfect places for volunteer jobs where the kid's doing a task on a schedule outside the family. It's really important. And I see a lot of moms that can't let go. They kind of gotten their identity tied up in being a special needs mom. And when I suggest that their kids should go in the store and buy something, the mom says she can't let go. And, and the kid's a 16-year-old honors student, and he's never gone in a store. But why are they not learning money? Like in my generation, I got 50 cents a week for allowance, and I could buy five comics with that. But if I wanted a 69-cent airplane, I had to save for two weeks. I was learning that when I was seven and eight years old. Yeah, absolutely. You learn the meaning of money. I remember the kids that uh, would get the job to mow the lawn at the church. Yep. And the, the, at first it seemed like a really sweet deal because you made a bunch more money than you did for, for doing other chores. But then it turns out if you skip on Saturday, every single person in our church would know that you yeah. didn't mow and look at it outside. And you need that. Like that kind of that's social pressure but helps you. The, but that's the thing. And we need to be doing more of those opportunities. And since it's at the church, everybody knows, oh, well, the kid didn't mow the lawn, you know, that week. You see, this is, um, uh, and we need to be looking more for just opportunities in the neighborhood. But what's been happening with me, I go back and forth between I'll do an autism meeting, you know, then I'll go to the NAMI, like the meat conference. You know, then I'm right now, uh, nobody's going to the meat plants, but I'd, uh, but going back and forth between world of mechanical things, animal things. Um, I'll do a talk at a university. 
and a jumping, I call that jumping between the silos. But what happens to a lot of these kids that get diagnosed with autism, and that becomes a primary identity. We're out in Silicon Valley, the primary identity is a computer programmer. But then they don't see the math ability and going, well, we ought to just move this kid ahead. Let's get him on, uh, let's see if he can write JavaScript. And then they've got to learn, yeah, they got to write JavaScript for something somebody else wants. That's right. That, That's right. Something's an assignment for something somebody else wants. And every adult can appreciate this because uh, – when you're left to your own, like you were saying, you need to set a schedule and that's good for an autistic child, but that's good for everyone, right? Like getting into these patterns and having expectations where somebody else is going to evaluate your work. Did you meet what they need? That's that, right. that is good. It's, it's also good for the soul, right? It's the thing that makes you feel progress. It allows you to evaluate, to figure out if you're getting better. These are, these are all valuable things. But I think that, you know, a certain amount of autism has always been here. But when, little, when kids are really small and they're like two years old, I mean, I look really severe at two years old. Fortunately, I got a lot of really good early therapy. And then when you work with the little kids, work on getting them talking, you can pull some of them, you know, get the speech going. But what I'm seeing now is I'm seeing smart kids now that are just quirky and different. One kid's going to the basement to play video games on a disability check and the other go, goes out there and gets a job. And that's what I'm seeing. I've also had parents tell me, they get their kid out and expose them to more stuff. They'll say he blossomed. You see, you got to see an autistic person is a bottom up thinker. You got to fill the database with lots and lots, and lots of information. And, and uh, then they've looked at more things. You got to stretch them. There's a tendency to overprotect. Give them choices. When I was 15, I was afraid to go to my aunt's ranch. Mother gave me a choice. I could go all summer or I could go for a week. Not going wasn't one of the choices. <laughs> and I got out to the ranch and I loved it. And kids are often afraid to try new things. You know, but give them some choices of new things to try. I went to a meeting last year in Nebraska. They had a really nice uh, summer camp for kids. And the mom would say, you got my kid on a boat? You got to be kidding. Yeah, they got him on a boat and he loved it. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff I like to hear. I worked at a camp uh, for inner city kids that once the camp was done for the summer, then uh, people could rent out the camp for a week at a time. And I remember uh, there was a school for blind children and they wanted to take kids out in the canoe. And I was one of the lifeguards. Yeah. And at the time I was like really upset about this. Cause I was like, what happens if they fall in? Well, and they, ultimately the person, fine. what's that? As long as they can swim, they do have to know how to swim. And that's what the person told me, like, we're going to do the swim test just like everybody else. But the more that we keep these kids out of the water, the less safe they are. And it yeah. really struck me that that that's was right. the person willing to allow that child to experience something that's got a little bit of danger, but you've got uh, guardrails around them, allows them to blossom, like you were saying. Well, that's just it. And, and uh, they've got to get out and do things. The other thing I've noticed, because I've done a lot of corporate talks, too, on, you know, diversity, and I talk about the different kinds of minds, is um, I've seen a tendency sometimes in a large corporation, and these are not meat companies, and they're not tech companies, so they're regular consumer product companies, you know, keep their names out of it, but a tendency for the disability community to almost build a silo inside the corporation, and that's not good. I remember one company, big brand name company, and I gave my talk, they invited everybody to come. And then when it was time to meet with the managers, most companies will get the regular human resources person to come in and meet with me. No, this company, they, the disability, I just met with the disability people. And I don't, it, 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 it's uh, making a silo inside that, that corporation. That's not good. Another thing I found on really progressive stuff in corporations, uh, well, I don't care if it's innovation, whether it's uh, hiring people that are different, there has to be a champion inside that corporation that pushes it forward. Yeah, I mean, and I think that it's uh, inside of corporations, they want things to be as standardized and as normalized as possible. And so you have to find somebody that's like, yes, this is not going to fit the ordinary pattern. But the value out of this is we may bring in somebody that can help us think through a problem in a way that we wouldn't have. And it's hard because you, those dividends may not pay off right away. You've got to have somebody that's built up enough. 
problem. We've had too much of next quarter's profit statement. We've had too much of that. That's been part of the problem. So after you and I scheduled this interview, I was watching um, one of my favorite podcasts, which is probably the largest podcast in the world right now called The Joe Rogan Experience. And uh, your name got brought up on this podcast as uh, somebody that helped a chef figure out how um, amazing our food system was. And I'm, I am often uh, struck by how many people know who you are, Temple, you know, the the fact that people, when they heard that you were coming on this podcast or you're being spoken about on the largest podcast in the world, what was it like to go from a person that was being in motels and helping build slaughterhouses to now being one of the most well-known names in, in the world as far as uh, animal treatment and autism? I feel it's a responsibility. And right now, I really work hard on uh, with my students I have a lot of my students that are out in the meat industry. They're doing some really good things out there. Lily's one of my students. We talked about Lily. Um, Lily Calloway Edwards She's now an assistant professor at Colorado State University. Um, I have people have walked up to me in the airport and they'd say, well, how do you like all this attention? I said, it's a responsibility. And I've got to try to think about things in a real level-headed, sensible way. Now, of course, one of the reasons why I was looking up so much stuff on repurposing old drugs for cytokine storms is I'm at risk. I'd like to save my butt. I now have, I now have a pile of abstract. I, I print the first page of an article out and then I write notes on it. I don't print the whole paper out. I now have a pile of the first page of journal articles that thick right now. I have been deep in the literature and I think I do know how to save my butt. But I'm not going to mention any drug names because people go berserk. I'll only talk about the principles. So one of the questions that I've tried to ask everybody as coronavirus has gone on is, what do you think the world will look like in two weeks? Probably pretty much the same. Um, you know, the thing we need to be looking at is this herd immunity thing. We now have a meatpacking plants that are half infected now, all the people there, and a prison that's almost 100% infected. Will the, will the, will the herd immunity st uh, start to make it stop? That's not going to happen in two weeks. But that's something we need to look at. A vaccine's the ultimate solution. And I'll be one of the first ones to line up for the vaccine. And then the other thing is repurposing these old drugs. But what I learned is this timing thing. We've got to figure out a very simple way to do the timing. And there's a blood test. Again, I'm not going to name it. There's a blood test that I think will work for that. But the problem is, is that you could miss the timing messing around trying to get the blood test. So now I want to think of something even simpler. Like, okay, seven to 10 days in, now you start to feel better. Then all of a sudden you're super sick. And that may be the simple way to know the cytokine storm is just starting and you better hit it with something. Which one do you pick off the pharmacy shelf? That's the $50 million question. So I think in, in times of crisis, right, you can see it as also an opportunity to make some changes in the world. Kind of the Overton window of what are acceptable ideas gets opened up and new ideas have the possibility of coming in. As we're reshaping society because we're restarting things, what are some ideas that were used to be considered radical or unthinkable that you think we really ought to try and inject back into society um, in, in order to come out of this ahead? Well, of course, one of the things is I look at all the convention badges I've collected and I've put them on my wall upstairs and I'm going, am I going to go to a convention again? Are we ever going to use convention centers again the way we use them? Because they were some major spreaders of the virus, international convention, and then they get on the airplane. 20 years ago, I used to call the airplane the great silver vector for disease. <laughs> and and uh, because that they'd go to this convention and then fly, fly back home and spread it around. Um, and then with learning, let's just say for business, okay, my industry, the meat industry, the sales department would go out and visit the customers. Every industry did that. Now they're forced to do it online. Are they going to do less business travel or are people, um, super social and, and, uh, it'll just come back as soon as they're not worried about getting sick. And what's your intuition? I think a lot of it's going to come back. Um, I was just looking at some stuff on cell phone data. Okay, it was supposed to be staying home. When it got near the end of the time for the lockdown order, there was more 
cars out away from their homes. Not a huge amount. You know, and I've been pretty careful because I'm in the at-risk group. Yeah, you and I both do a lot of speaking. And my sense is, my hope is that uh, people will value the attention that they're giving when they're traveling that much more. Like now it'll be like, hey, if I'm away from home or if I'm intermixing with a whole bunch of strangers, then I'm really going to pour my whole self into it as opposed to showing up and really spending most of the time on your computer and your cell phone and kind of being there. Well, the other thing is there's certain things that online's not going to replace about conventions. Let's just look at my own students. I had it all set up for my dairy graduate student, Cora, to go to an animal welfare meeting to meet two of the top researchers in dairy welfare. And that was canceled. Now, I can remember when I was her age, those kind of experiences are really important. I remember going, I was in my 20s, going and meeting this scientist named Ron Kilgore. And that, and he was like his really great big person in animal behavior. That was an important experience for me for a young student. Doing that online is just not the same. Also, you don't get all the little informal contacts where I, I met somebody in the hall and I sold them a job. Just there's a lot of that stuff you're gonna miss out. You know, I think that um, maybe what will happen is maybe fewer, better done trips. Because I've been thinking about, do I want to get on back on the road as hard as I was? Um, you know, there's things I think we can do online, but on the other hand, it's not going to totally replace, and it's not going to replace uh, the chemistry lab in high school that may get the student turned on to chemistry and go into that career. That's right. And you can't teach welding online um, you and you can't teach, teach plumbing. And No, this stuff cannot be done online. And My sense is that, that we'll end up having this be somewhat like a baptism for most people, that, that you don't have a choice. You either have to stay in your house and, and avoid it at all costs, or you have to say, I'm going to go out and risk getting it. Because the, the idea that we would wait for a vaccine seems to me to be too far off in the future, particularly when people in their 30s are, for the most part, not, not taken down by this. Yeah, at most part, and then a few are killed by the cytokine storm. Right. Probably killed by it. The other problem you've got is if everybody just went out there, the medical system would be overwhelmed completely. And the other problem is, is then the young ones bring it back and give it to granddaddy and grandfather. That's the other problem. Because my risk of dying, if I get it, is way higher. That's than right. You, for example, and and uh, that's why we need to figure out how to treat this severe COVID and stop this cytokine storm before it kills. Where your own immune system, instead of defending the base, starts to burn up the base. Well, Temple, I am so grateful that you were willing to, to take the time to do this. I know we had talked about doing this sometime when you came to visit um, St. Louis next. Maybe we'll do one in person, but for now, it was, a, it was a big honor to be able to sit down and do this. It was really great, and uh, thank you so much for having me. And well, I think we've talked about a lot of interesting things. Yep. Be safe, and I'll, uh, I'll see you again soon.